And we have the privilege now of reading God's word, which is completely true. So take your Bibles with me and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read verses 19 through 25. That should be familiar to you by now. And please stand with me as we read. Next week, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. So we're moving on. But this week, we will once again look at these amazing verses. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Lord God, we we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray you would speak to us now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, as you know, we are in week three of a three-week series, The Christ-Centered Life, Family, and Church. And we've been looking at the three exhortations found in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. And first there was, let us draw near, and the idea of worship. Then there was, let us consider how to stimulate one, or, one another to love and good deeds and the concept of spiritual growth. Now today we're going to focus on, let us hold fast to confession of our hope and how that relates to serving God. Now we're going to ask four questions. What is it in theory? What does it look like in practice? What hinders us? And what are the benefits? What are God's blessings that come as a result? both individually and as households and also as the gathered church. So what is it, first of all? What is it in theory? What does it mean to hold fast the confession of our hope? Hold fast means to possess something completely. F.F. Bruce says it this way, It is only if we hold fast our boldness and the glorying of our hope that we are the house of God. It is as we hold fast the beginning of our confidence firm until the end, as Hebrews 3.14 says, that we are partakers or companions of Christ. The possession of our hope is evidence of real salvation, of saving faith in Christ. Uh, You'll remember in the parable of the sower that Jesus says this, the seed that goes on the good soil... These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast or keep it. Same word. They hold it fast, they keep it, and bear fruit with perseverance. Persevere. John MacArthur says, holding on is the human side of eternal security. The reformers called it the perseverance of the saints. It is not something we do to keep ourselves saved, but it is evidence on the human side that we are saved. 
It's a paradox, just as the doctrine of election. God sovereignly chooses those who are saved, but he will not save anyone who does not believe. God keeps us secure in his Son, but our own wills, expressed in holding on and perseverance, are also involved. As the strongest Calvinist theologian recognizes, God's sovereignty does not exclude man's responsibility. For Jesus said, No one can come to me except the Father who sent me draws him, as well as, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now, when the writer speaks of holding on to the confession of our hope, he means the substance of our faith. The Greek word for confession means a public and doctrinal confession. A public and doctrinal confession. It is a confession of faith in the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. It is a confession of faith in Jesus' sacrificial, substitutionary death on the cross for us. It is a confession of faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, this is not done in a vacuum. It is done in community with others. Now, when we belong to Jesus, the inevitable outflow of his life in us is that we will want to live the rest of our lives in humble, grateful service to the one who gave his life for us. We will want to confess to everyone we meet the truth that has brought us out of death and into life. Now, it's closely linked to the other two exhortations. To draw near to God and to consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. They point to an important truth. That a lifestyle of worshiping God leads to a lifestyle of serving God. That a lifestyle of worshiping God leads to a lifestyle of serving God. Now, it's actually a lot more integrated than that. Uh, There are six root words in the Bible that that mean worship. Uh, Three in Hebrew, three in Greek. Now, the word meaning worship is translated in different ways. To revere to bow down, and to serve. Now, Deuteronomy 6.13 says this, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. The Greek word is habad. Now, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, in Matthew 4.10, Jesus quoted this verse, and he said, You shall worship the Lord your God, him alone shall you serve, using the, the Greek word latruo. Now, both Habad and Latruo mean to, to work, to labor, or to do service towards. You'll remember in the Old Testament, God told Pharaoh, he said, Let my people go that they may serve me. Same Hebrew word, Habad. Joshua, in Joshua twenty four fifteen said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, the same Hebrew word. Paul uses the Greek word in Acts 24, 14. He says, I worship the God of my fathers. I serve him. Uh, So he uses that word interchangeably. He uses it in Philippians 3, 3. Uh, We are the true circumcision who worship God. The same word is used 
for the Old Testament sacrifices here in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2, those who worship or those who serve are once cleansed, they would no longer have consciousness of sins. So to serve is truly an act of worship. But it goes beyond that. To worship God is to serve God. To worship is to serve. And a lifestyle of worshiping God is a lifestyle of serving God. And in our purpose as a church, we exist, we say, to do three interrelated things. Worship God, build up believers, reach others for Christ. In our purpose, and also, when we build one another up and reach others, we're worshiping God. Our vision statement combines all three beautifully become a worshiping body of biblically equipped believers who effectively influence our world for Christ through purposeful relationships. You see the blending of these ideas. Each flows from the other. Each builds upon the other. Now in chapter 10, verse 23, we're encouraged to hold on to the confession without wavering. Without wavering. This literally means no leaning Uh, That which does not bend, or that which is straight, firm, unbending. Picture a structure which is anchored to its foundation in such a way that it cannot be moved by strong winds, or anything that comes against it. Now the author of Hebrews did not want the pressures of aggressive persecution to sway his readers. It's being grounded in the person and work of Jesus without being swayed by changing circumstances. And our circumstances change all the time, don't they? Not swayed. If the confession wavers, it's because the confessors waver. As a church, we desire, and again, I will point your attention to three framed pictures over here or or, or statements we, we we say we desire to relate for influence to utilize the strength of our teaching of biblical truth to focus on supportive relationships and relating and influencing the people we encounter now here at grace church we have a wonderful history of commitment to biblical truth of living by the book And I want us to continue to affirm that and to grow even deeper in that commitment. You bring your Bibles with you. It's a good thing. We are to rightly divide the word of truth. We are to correctly handle God's book. We are to faithfully teach scripture. And by God's grace as individuals and as as households and as a church, confessing faith in Christ, holding to the truths of God's word, by the grace of God we won't waver. Now, the reason we can hold on is found right here in verse 23 in Hebrews 10. Why can we hold on? It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. That's why we can hold on to the confession of our hope. Because God is faithful. Our hope is built on the unfailing promises of God. Paul said, faithful is he who calls you who will also bring it to pass. 
1 Thessalonians 5.24. Abraham knew that God was able to perform what he had promised. Romans 4.21. See, God does not lie. God does not lie. And therefore, we can rest assured that he will do what he says he will do. He will do what is right and good and true. Faithful is he who has promised reminds us of the truth we saw in Hebrews earlier in chapter 4, verse 1, that he is the one who has promised his children to enter his rest. That we will someday enter his rest. See, the faithfulness of God is a repeated theme in Scripture. We read about it this morning in Lamentations. It is never, trust, it is never disappointed those who place their trust in God. So what does it look like in practice, to hold fast the confession of our hope. Well, I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like Paul and Barnabas and Aquila and Priscilla and Dorcas and Apollos and even the thief on the cross and anyone who has ever placed their faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of opposition. It looks like unswerving devotion to Christ. Unswerving, unbending devotion to Jesus. The author of Hebrews wrote to Christians who were, they were faced with persecution unlike any that we know. They were faced with persecution from a Roman society that threatened the church's morale. The writer encourages them. Hold fast the confession of our hope. Now, a series of letters between the Roman governor Pliny and the emperor Trajan help us understand what it was like to be a Christian in that society. Governor Pliny wrote Emperor Trajan for advice on how to deal with Christians. Now, here's the situation. Local merchants were angry because Christians refused to participate in the civic religious ceremonies, the the religious rites. And so they were cutting down the sale of meat at festivals. They hit the pocketbooks of local businessmen. And so Pliny wrote to Trajan, I have never been present at an examination of Christians. See, it was going on, persecution of believers. He says, consequently, I don't know the nature or the extent of the punishments usually meted out to them, nor the grounds for starting an investigation and how far it should be pressed. He's writing to the emperor and saying, help me know how to persecute the Christians. Well, Trajan's reply shows what happened. The emperor made the practice of Christianity illegal, saying that when Christians are brought before you, and the charges against them is proved, they must be punished. But in the case of anyone who denies that he is a Christian and makes it clear that he is not, by offering prayers to our gods, he is to be pardoned. A person accused of being a Christian was brought into the court before the governor and asked if he or she was a Christian. They could offer a quick public prayer to the Roman gods, thereby denying their faith. 
quite possibly they could offer that prayer to the Roman emperor himself, for the people thought he was a god. Now, refusal to do so meant execution. So for a Christian in those days to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering was to sign your own death warrant. They were putting their life on the line. It was similar, similar to what happened with Daniel and his friends. You might remember they were known as servants of the Most High God, and they suffered for it. All around the world right now, Christians are publicly professing their con- the content of their faith, and they are suffering real persecution for it. The ten worst countries in the world today for persecuting Christians are, in order, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Somalia, Maldives, Yemen, Bhutan, Vietnam, Laos, and Afghanistan. They are committing atrocities against Christians. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are in danger. But what about us who don't face that same danger today? We're sitting here in in peace and safety. We must not count our lives or our jobs or our status or our position or our acceptance as dear to us. But we ought to confess our hope to everyone Everywhere, every day, in the marketplace, in the boardroom, in the classroom, on the athletic field. Every place the soles of our feet tread, and every place our souls, like lots, are tormented by the errors of unprincipled men. Could it be that we are accepted in our society often because we do not confess? We are not vocal about our faith when we ought to be? As Mordecai said to Esther, who knows? Who knows that you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? And her attitude, if I perish, I perish. We have to take every opportunity. There's a creed. The Apostles' Creed. There are many confessions of faith. But as we confess the substance of our faith, what is it? What is the confession that you and I are confessing on a daily basis in the realms in which we operate? What's our confession? What creed do we confess publicly? Serving God is an act of worship, characterized by unswerving devotion to Jesus. Now, what hinders us in this confession from holding on to this confession? Serving God in every place as individuals and families in the church. I'll briefly give you three things. One, we're afraid to. Let's be honest up front. We're afraid to. And fear of man is a snare. A snare that when we're caught in it, we can't do what we're supposed to do. 
we get ensnared by the fear of rejection or fear of reprisal or fear of embarrassment. See, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. In Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. Not ashamed, unafraid. But we're afraid too often. We're also unwilling. We don't want to. I want to be honest. There's a lot of times I don't want to make the confession. If I make the confession, I put myself on the line. And that means I can't do other things I usually do in public. Treating people certain ways and being rude or being finding fault. See, a lot of times I don't want to. Paul's helpful here. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. He says, my heart's desire of his own people. He says, my heart's desire and my prayer for them is for their salvation. That they would be saved. That they would know where they were going to be for eternity. See, I'd love to live like that. But I get diverted by too many other things. And so do you. I was thinking a lot about uh, John chapter 4 recently. When Jesus came to the woman at the well and he asked her for a drink. And she says, well, why are you even asking me for a drink? You're a, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. We don't talk. And he says, if you knew. Oh, if you knew who had just asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. And she says, give me that water. I don't want to come here to the well all the time. It's an interesting picture. And a lot of things happen in that setting. One of the things is Jesus says, worship. is all about worshiping me in spirit and in truth. And the Father seeks worshipers like that. Well, it's interesting. This lady goes away because Jesus had exposed some things about her life. And we think she may have been a believer by what the scriptures tell us. And she went out into the city. And she told the people. And it says that many believed. Many believed because of the word that she spoke. And then Jesus went to the city. And he spoke. And they more believed. And they said, now we believe not just because of what she said, but because of what you said too. But here's the interesting thing. When Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. And they come back. And Jesus says, hey, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And it was just very interesting that the the disciples went into the city as consumers. Just buying food. We don't read about anybody coming to faith in Christ. Believing in him. As a result of their interaction with that city. But when the woman went back. Well, people believed. The woman at the well had more influence in the city than the disciples did at that that time. They were just consumers then. But how about you and me when we go into a city, when we go into an office building, when we go onto an athletic field or into a classroom, or wherever we go, are we there as spectators, consumers, or people on mission for Jesus? Are we there because we have to be there, or are we there because God sent us there? See, it's a whole change of perspective. If I see myself as a person who's on mission for Jesus all the time, it changes, it transforms my soccer coaching. It, cha- it changes, it transforms my going to the market. It changes and transforms any 
contact I have with people. I'm a better friend with the world than I am of God most weekdays. If Jesus is not number one in our life, we're not going to want to speak of him to others or act in ways that draw or attract others to him. And I think about all the things I get distracted about and the things that we bring into our lives, the inputs, music, movies, literature, games, whatever. Do they move us closer or further from a Christ-centered lifestyle? Or my, or my schedule and our schedules. Do they, are they wasted or redeemed, the time? What are we doing with this time? And then I think about other inputs, the word of God and prayer, which will be the two most important inputs in our lives, where we take in the word of God, God's spiritual food to us, and we respond to God in prayer. Are they central to our life, or do they just get tacked on when we feel like it or we feel the need? See, I need to have the word of God in prayer central in my life, coupled with an idea of surrendering to God, trusting in God, and resting in Him all the time, or I grow cold, or I don't want to do what pleases God. I want to do what pleases me. There's something else we're afraid to, and we don't want to, and then we think we have to. We think we have to. It's easy to see service and outreach as obligations rather than privileges. It's not an obligation. It's a privilege. Jonah saw God's instruction as obligation. A requirement. Paul saw them as a privilege. Privilege. Is it truly service if you, if you do it because you have to? How can we get to the point where it's a get-to versus a have-to in our, in our minds as we're going forward? If we fall so deeply in love with Jesus, people will have to tell us to shut up about him. If we fall so deeply in love with Jesus, they will need to say, speak no more to us in this name. When we do that, we'll operate in our areas of gifting and passion versus getting involved in all sorts of things and spraying to all fields. Uh, Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We'll be more apt to confess our hope courageously and unswervingly when we encourage one another. Every believer in Jesus is gifted Every believer in Jesus matters. It's the fact that God has given us great gifts, each one of us. And he wants us to, to use them. He wants to use us and those gifts to build his kingdom. Last week, we had an insert in the bulletin. It's in there again. It's on the caring team. How you can help. There were so many responses, and we're looking for more. But caring for one another in the body of Christ... There's another insert again uh, today, one we've been working on actually for months. 
called Getting Started in Ministry at Grace. And it just gives an idea of even in, in certain uh, areas here, how you can serve in your areas of giftedness. And there's many more that aren't on these pages. But prayerfully consider these things. Take it home. Read it. Pray and ask God, where do you want me engaged for your kingdom? See, when we start thinking more, Lord, where can I be used for your kingdom versus what do I want to do or what is there the need? Where can I best be used for your kingdom? That, that, that question transforms our direction and God opens the door. We are servants of Christ. Uh, sometimes we think we have to because we think of it as something we do. I have to go, go serve now. I've got to go do my, my obligation. But we are, if we are servants, servants serve. And Jesus said, if anyone serves me, he's to follow me. John 12, 26. We read in Matthew 20, 28, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. But if we are servants of Christ, it will just be what we do. We serve him, which is also worship. Now, what are the benefits? What are the blessings? When we live a lifestyle of worship that's evidenced by growth and service and outreach, here's, here's an awesome thing. We will be captivated by the realization that we live for a mission bigger than us. We live for a mission, a king, and a kingdom much greater than us. A transcendent cause that goes beyond all earthly fame. Look at the Great Commission with me for just a moment. Matthew 28. After the resurrection, before the ascension, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain that Jesus had shown them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, and here is what he said, Matthew 28, 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus said, You will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes on you in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now these words ought to have an effect everywhere, including our home life. We all have hurts and worries. Praise God that we can cast our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. But serving a mission bigger than us doesn't eliminate those cares and worries. But it puts them in perspective. It puts them in proper perspective. See, the early church was based in the households of Rome. Christians in New Testament times worshipped together in their homes. They welcomed guests and supported missionaries in their homes. They evangelized in homes. They assisted the poor in homes. But I think what has happened 
in our culture is that we have begun to see our homes as places of refuge. We have begun to see our homes as a haven of rest. But we ought not to see them just as a refuge or a haven of rest, but as mission bases. That our homes ought to be mission bases. That we must be who we are in public as well as in private. And so then we see ourselves as serving the Lord as we shepherd our children. Or kids as you obey your parents. Uh, We see ourselves as serving the Lord when we serve other Christians and the stranger that, that crosses our path. Because we have a purpose greater than ourselves, beyond ourselves. And it's to serve God in the world through the church. There's something else we also experience as a benefit. We experience, we witness church growth. And not by slick and sly methods and recipes for growth that can easily be manipulated, but in a way that God intends. If you look in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42... We see life in the body as God intends. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many signs and wonders were taking place to the apostles. And all who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind, breaking bread from house to house, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity in heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, we will uh, witness church growth of the new believer growth kind more than transfer growth kind. Now, there's one last blessing I want to point out. And I kept it for last because I think it's one that needs to be on our, the forefront of our minds. It's the blessing of persecution. It's the blessing of persecution. See, unswerving devotion to Christ, serving Him no matter what, was unpopular in biblical days and it's unpopular today. 1 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, we may not have physical persecution going on today, but there, there many times it is open season on Christians. There is mental and social and relational and emotional persecution of Christians going on that often are precursors for physical persecution. But when you are persecuted for your faith in Jesus, when you are put down, when you are laughed at, when you are scoffed at, remember this one thing. It's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus said, if they persecute me, they'll persecute you. We have been born again to a living hope. Our hope, Hebrews tells us, is an anchor for our souls. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. God's faithfulness is great. And though many will scoff and many will oppose, the day, the day is approaching. And I hope we're all ready for that day. Let's pray. Lord God, we we pray that you would reign supreme in us. That's our continual prayer. And Lord, we, we pray that with your coming day, we know, Lord, that 
mockers will come with their mocking. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? But we know, Lord, that you will return. And we pray, Lord, that we would be found faithful till you come back. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me. I just want to read one last thing as we go. 2 Peter chapter 3, don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We're going to be up here if anybody needs prayer. I want to encourage you this afternoon to come out and welcome every person you see warmly. We want everybody embraced uh, who comes on this property, and especially at this open house this afternoon. Anyway, God bless you. Have a great day.